In this session, we're going to jump into observation. So as a quick roadmap, our plan for reading the Bible for all it's worth is poema. Preparation, observation, interpretation, meditation, application. Um, so the last session, we went through the preparation process. And so let's just kind of assume that we've done that, okay? We've, um, we're have we getting ready to read a passage of scripture. And uh, we've stopped to just prepare our hearts before the Lord. And now we're going to talk about observation. Now, observation, the key is, the question is like, what does the text actually say? So the reason we observe is because we want to first start, okay, we so often start with what we think the Bible says, right? And I, I know we've all done this. We've heard other people do this. And it's, it's easy to point out sometimes when someone else does it, um, they say something, you know, the Bible says, you know, I, and you know, like there's things like, the Bible says cleanliness is next to godliness or something like that, you know, and that's, that's a silly example because that's um, like Ben Franklin, I think, in, the, um, in one of his almanacs or something like that. Um, it, but, but people do say things like that, um, thinking that it's scripture, you know, and so it's easy to kind of see, but we all kind of do it. And here's the reality is we don't just do it um, like in blatant, silly examples like that, but we do it um, with a verse that's sitting right in front of us. So we'll read it but we won't pay sufficient attention to what is actually being said and what's not being said. And so sometimes we will um, attribute to scripture uh, things that aren't really there. And so the, the observation stage is saying, what does the Bible really say? And it's tempting to skip over this, tempting to skip right into interpretation or right into application. But this is, out of all the steps, this is a discipline um, that I think is so vital. If we could put this discipline into place, it would change the way that we read the Bible and help us to be more careful at listening down, listening to what it says. So here's what we do. We sit down, you know, the observation stage, we sit down with nothing but the biblical text. That's it. We, no commentaries, no study Bibles, no aids, no sermons from other people, um, no outline that we're trying to make. We sit down with nothing but what the text. We want to know what the text says. Later, we want to know what it means, but right now we want to know what it says. Okay. And so here's a way to think about this. You want to stare at the text longer than you think is necessary. All right. Stare at the text of scripture longer than you think is necessary. How long does it take to look at a, a verse of scripture and see what's really there? Uh, assess, like give a generous assessment to how long you think it'll take for you to like read this passage and see what's really there. Then double that, triple that, quadruple that. Stare at it longer than you think is necessary. Um, one thing I've found over the course of my life, um, which is not that long yet, is that there's always more in the Bible than I've seen the last time that I was there. I'm constantly finding out more and more and more about passages that I thought I understood, passages I studied, passages I did this poema process on, and I come back to them and I find, oh, I, I had no idea that was in there, you know? And, and so it's just so good for us to regularly take the time to observe, to pause, to look at it longer than we think is necessary. Um, a lot of times what happens is uh, like the fact that we're familiar, like our very familiarity with the text can make us blind to what it really says, you know? So, you know, we've all done this before where you try to give directions to somebody like to somewhere in your town that you pass all the time and you can't think of the street names, you know, um, because you're so familiar with it that you kind of have forgotten some of those details that are actually there because they're so um, common to you. And so, like, why does this step matter? I, I just want to say this. Like, it, it matters because it, what it does is it protects us from our own assumptions that we're going to make about the text, right? We, we all, we kind of said this a little bit in the last session, but we all have this kind of pre-understanding that blinds us to what the text is actually saying. A pre-understanding, an assumption about what does it mean? So, you know, the first session we used a, a silly example of, um, 
you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me now. Is that, is that like, what does that actually mean? Like, is it saying, um, that, that like I can win every basketball game? Like, what does it mean? What does it say? Well, I think it's great as a statement of God empowers me in everything I do. That's certainly true. But what does it actually mean? And you can tell, you can find the answer to that. Um, not just through commentaries or whatever, but through simple observation and not just relying on your pre-understanding of what you think that means, your assumption about it. Um, and so, Observation basically forces us to look at the text of scripture long enough that we move beyond what we want or assume it to be saying. And, and, I, and I've said that before too, like, um, you know, Jesus saying, sell your possessions, give it to the poor. Um, I don't want that to be literally true. And so observation will help me stare at it long enough to where I can get past what I want it to, to say or what I assume it says and dig down into what it actually says. So the observation stage protects us from our assumptions. It also prepares us for the interpretation stage, okay? Interpretation is putting the pieces together, but if we don't understand the pieces properly, then what we put together, the interpretations, they, they're going to be flawed. They don't stand a chance in that. Um, and so, you know, like uh, I've heard it said, interpretation without observation is like a verdict in court without the presentation of evidence, you know, it's like just a snap decision um, and and there's no evidence being presented. So observation presents the evidence to us and then we build our interpretation is like kind of putting our verdict together based on that. So how are we going to do this? What does it mean to really observe? What's the process? So first of all, we want to look at the big picture. We're going to observe it by looking at the big picture. So we're going to do things like, so a lot, everything I'm going to say in this whole session, I think is fairly common sense, but bear with me because walking through it again, as I've been saying, the structure, the artificially rigid nature of this helps us to process and get some thoughts in place so that then when we sit down to do this in real life, it looks more natural. And we kind of have thoughts that we've processed and some, some ideas um, coming into it. So First of all, identify like the type of the passage. So is it, is it a dialogue passage? If so, who's speaking in the passage? Who are they speaking to? What are they speaking about? What's the setting in which they're speaking? Um, is, is it the passage, does it have an argument that's being made? So if that's true, then what is being argued? Um, who is it being argued to and who is it being argued by, right? Um, at what point in the argument is my passage right now located? Like, is this the culmination of the argument? Is this the setup to the argument? Is this like some um, aside or parenthetical thought in the midst of all that? Um, or, or this like a preliminary supporting point to the argument? So just assessing, okay, is it an argument? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to observe that and I'm going to try to set the big picture. Um, where does it fit in there? Maybe the passage you're looking at is giving some kind of practical instruction. And so we want to ask then, who is doing the instructing? Who is being instructed? Um, have they done something to warrant instruction, right? Is he correcting somebody um, or, or done something ignorantly that needs like some further clarification? Is that person being addressed in a soft tone or a harsh tone? Um, what, what are they intended to do with the instruction that they receive? Um, and so we, we want to be careful still, now this is observation, so we don't want to ask if this instruction is still relevant for us, like that's for the interpretation state. We're trying to get what's going on in the text. Um, a lot of times we're reading a narrative passage, and so then we want to ask, okay, what's the story about? Why is the story being told? Who in the story, like who's in the story, period, and who in that story comes across as a hero? Who comes across as a villain? Um, is there a point that the story is trying to make? And so all of these are basically questions that we're asking to try to get the big picture, identify what type of passage it is. Then we're going to ask, 
how does that passage relate to the surrounding context, okay? So we need to observe like what's happening in a given verse, but we also need to observe like its relationship to its context, okay? And so um, so I want to use an example here, um, and this is going to be um, Matthew 18. Um, this is, this is a, I love using this example because this is another one of those um, things that I think we take out of context, and, and it's, it's fine, I think, the way that we use it, but it's a lot more powerful, actually, when we see the way it's intended. So Matthew 18, verse 20, it says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Okay, great verse, great promise. Where two or three are gathered together, there I am among them. This is Jesus talking, okay? And so, um, if we don't, obs- so we can observe that passage all along. We can get this reassurance of, man, two or three of us together, God's with us, right? That's such a reassuring promise. You'll hear it at weddings. You'll hear it um, at church gatherings. You'll hear it in small group settings. It's a beautiful thing. Prayer meetings, all that kind of thing. Um, but but we also want to ask, how does it relate to the surrounding context? And that can begin to shape our understanding of what Jesus is actually saying. Because have you ever read that and you wonder, okay, well, are you not with me when I'm alone? You know, like, what does that mean? And so, in the preceding context, the verses before it, we see Jesus is talking about like dealing with a person who's caught in sin. Okay. And that's significant. That's the context for it, right? Verse 18 and 19 seem to be saying that like, um, these are the verses like right, right before it, that like, if a person is bound in sin, that like, that's going to be like an eternal thing. Um, but if we can lose someone from that sin, right, that that's going to be an eternal consequence. So it's talking about sin in this whole context. And there's some tricky verses there for sure, but that's the preceding context. Then the following context, starting in verse 21, he goes on to talk about forgiving a person who's caught in sin. Okay. So we have sin before and after, um, dealing with someone who's sinning and then forgiving someone who's sinning after the fact. Okay. And so I think given the context, like we should expect verse 20 then to be talking about dealing with a person caught in sin, okay? And so the idea I think that it's getting at when he says two or three, um, we're, we're, you know, two or three are together, there I am in their midst. Like, I think he's saying like Jesus is there with them in the context of addressing a sinning person, right? Um, the, the, the mention of two or three, like goes back to verses 16 and 17. Like he mentions um, the witnesses that we gather together. And so I think he's saying when we deal with someone in sin, and two or three of us are there trying to establish the issue. I'm going to be there with them. I'm going to, I'm going to be comforting them. Now, that's a little different. It doesn't change the truth of the way that I think we kind of misuse this, um, which is that gather together and God's there with us. We know that's true. Um, but we miss something about this verse when we don't look carefully enough at what it's actually saying and what's kind of happening around it. So this is observation. We're just looking at the big picture. And man, this helps us get closer to what's really going on in these passages. Okay, so there you go. Look at the big picture. Now I want us to look closely, okay? Look closely. Look at what's really there and dig in. And this is where we can get really artificial and English teacher-ish with it. Um, But there is a helpful side to it, okay? So we want to look for like the details. Look closely. So look for the verbs, okay? Look for like the action words in it and ask like, you know, okay, what kind of verbs do we have? Is there like a... um, is there like an, an, an imperative? Is there a descriptive thing? You know, someone ran somewhere, an imperative telling someone to run somewhere, an interrogative where it's asking, you know, who ran or, you know, that kind of a thing. 
Um, we can ask questions like, is the verb past, present, or future? Um, we can ask, is the verb active or passive, right? Is it, um, is it you know, action done by somebody or action done to somebody? Um, uh, those kinds of things. And so asking all those questions are really good to help us understand, okay, what's going on? What are the nuts and bolts in this passage? What's really being said? And uh, of course, like if you want to be real precise, check the Greek. I will give you tools to do that later, actually, um, when we get to the interpretation stage. Um, but in in this observation stage, I'm just going to say, you can trust your English Bibles. They are great. Sometimes you can even check translations with each other and kind of find out if, if one of them is being a little bit, um, you know, loose or, or, you know, just working extra hard to make it sound good in English and maybe missing something from one of the specific words. Um, but you can trust your English Bible and you can see the verbs in English. And um, and that, that almost always aligns perfectly with the, the, the verbs in Greek and all that kind of stuff. So um, just look at it and kind of wrestle with that. And then, and then ask, like, how does the verb relate to the rest of the sentence, right? Does the, the verb seem primary or does it seem like there's a bigger, more important verb in the sentence somewhere else? Um, you know, and so th- those are kind of questions that we look at and ask. Okay, then we're going to look for verbal modifiers, okay? So um, what things in the sentence that modify the verb, okay? So we're going to look for adverbs, you know, um, he ran quickly, um, those kinds of things. Um, we're going to look for prepositional phrases like he ran to the store, okay? So a phrase that modifies the verb in like a prepositional phrase. And we're going to look for a participle, you know, something like running, you know, instead of just um, uh, to run and, and things that kind of just modify like the action and what's going on there. Um, ask like, how is that action going to be accomplished? Those kinds of questions. So all those things, I mean, again, silly high school English, it feels like, right? Um, but it does help us get at like what's really going on in this sentence. And, and you'd be shocked at how many times you'll find a significant insight into a passage of scripture by simply trying to pay attention to the parts of speech that are there. Okay. So then we want to look for nouns. Okay. And you can, you can find your own way of doing this. I mean, you can like um, if some, you know, find the, the passage online, print it out on a sheet with lots of space in between, um, circle the verbs, put a box around the nouns, like put a triangle around something else, use different colors to identify. You can do all that stuff, whatever's helpful. Um, I try not to get super artificial with it and, and like ultra rigid, but sometimes it's really helpful. Sometimes I have a really tricky passage and I really do go all out to figure out what's there, but in any case, whether it's formal or not, look for the nouns in the sentence. So who or what is being mentioned? How do the nouns relate to the verbs, right? Are they subjects? Are they objects? Um, is that noun locked within a prepositional phrase? So all that noun is really doing is describing the action that's being done. Um, pronouns, man, these can be really tricky. So he, she, it, they, um, these are pronouns. And sometimes it's hard to figure out um, what are they referring back to? You know, is a he in a sentence, is it referring to a person or is it referring to God or, you know, whatever. And so we, we have to kind of trace that and try to see how it's working together. Okay. And once we define the nouns, look for the nouns, look for nominal modifiers, modifiers to the nouns. Okay. So things like adjectives, um, you know, the tall man, um, that kind of a thing. Look for prepositional phrases, you know, the man from Galilee, okay? That's a prepositional phrase that defines, modifies the noun. Um, and so then what do we learn by the way that the nouns are being described in the sentence, okay? Um, we're going to look for conjunctions, okay? For, but, and, therefore, nor, um, those kinds of things. Um, how does each of the, these um, conjunctions, like is it connecting? Is it comparing? Is it contrasting? 
and um, you know, is it building an argument? Those kinds of things. So look for the relationships in. And, and conjunctions are huge um, in sentences. And the tricky thing is in Greek, the, the pronouns are often, or so the, the conjunctions are often a little less precise. You know, the same word could be and, and it could be but. And so th- there's, you'll see different English translations do it different ways. It's still worth paying attention to and trying to figure out how it actually works. And, and that, that is going to set us up well for interpretation. Then we're going to do things like, once we've identified parts of speech, we're going to look for repetition, right? And so this is how we find emphasis in a passage. Like, it can help, help us figure out what a passage is about. They didn't have bold, underline, all caps um, it, when they wrote in Greek and Hebrew back then. Um, so the way that you would, um, and, and paper was like precious back then. And so the way that you would emphasize something is you would take the time and the the valuable resource of space on the paper to repeat something. So find something repeated, see what the connections are in that, right? Um, in all types of biblical genres, and we're going to go through those um, uh, in the, the next session, basically. Um, all, all types of biblical genres, repetition like stands out and it's important, okay? Um, and so, you know, you read, read the passage of 2 Corinthians 1, the beginning of it, repeats the word comfort a ton of times. Uh, the word suffering is repeated four times in, in the beginning of that. The word affliction is repeated a bunch of times. So it's just a reminder of, man, there's, there's like repetition helps us see like what's happening. Uh, the, the, the passage on the armor of God in Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 um, talks about like gird your loins and stand firm and all these kinds of things. But interestingly, in that passage, um, you know, it's talking about like the the sword of the spirit and the helmet of salvation and the um, the the shoes of the gospel, those kinds of things. Um, in that, you're kind of wondering, hey, what do I do? Like, how do, what does it look like to fight with this armor? You know, but in that passage, um, four times prayer is mentioned. Four times in that passage, prayer is mentioned. And so we get the sense of, okay, he's describing this fighting that takes place, but because he repeats the word prayer so many times, we get the sense that maybe this is like a prayer thing he's describing, or at least prayer is vital to the process. It, it leaves questions, but it, it, it suggests certain things and looking for those repetitions can really help. We also want to look for purpose statements in it, okay? So we we want to know why, right? Uh, and so we don't always get all that information, but when the author does share a purpose statement, it's really important. Okay, so um, the passage we've used a couple times now, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scriptures breathed out by God, it's profitable for reproof, for rebuke, um, for instruction, for training in righteousness. And then verse 17, so that the man of God may be complete um, you know, equipped for every good work. Okay. So the, so that is the purpose statement. This is why God breathed out scripture so that we could be complete. And so those are huge statements. And when we find them, latch onto that and see, okay, notice it, set it aside, um, recognize this is going to be really important to what's happening. Okay. We also want to look for cause and effect types of statements. Okay. So when you see an action, you ask what caused it. When you see a cause, ask what's the effect of it. Um, and so in this, like, we're just looking for, um, how did this happen? What happened, you know, in, and so you, you see things like, um, you know, um, man, I mean, you can, you can read through the Proverbs and you see all these warnings about being the foolish man because there's all these cause, these, all these, um, effects that come from the cause of being a fool. And, um, and all, all throughout the scripture, you see these, if then cause effect type statements. And so pay attention to those. Look for comparisons. Um, you know, comparison is an important way of determining like the nature of a given thing. So like in James 3, great passage, 
um, James 3 is trying to talk to us about the importance of our speech and how much that matters. So he uses the, the figure of speech of the tongue, like as this kind of stand in for, for the speech that we have. And he says, the tongue is like a rudder that steers a ship. The tongue is like a bit that guides a horse and it's put in its mouth. The, the tongue is like a spark that sets a forest on fire. And so he's using all these comparisons. And in each case, we ask, like, what is it about these two items that's being compared? You know, um, comparison isn't an equation. So it's, he's not saying like the tongue is literally a spark of fire, right? But he's comparing two elements within him. And so we, we kind of say, okay, it's not equating those two, but one element in one thing is being compared to another element in another thing. And we want to just pay attention to that and ask how the p- comparison helps us understand the item that's being presented to us. So similar to that, we want to look for contrasts as well. So not just comparisons, but also contrasts. Um, and so, you know, how are two things being contrasted? And what are the differences between when we see light and dark in in First uh, John, for example? Um, how are those two things different from each other? How do we better understand um, the one based on its close, like literary proximity to the other thing? Um, so in literature, like when these two things are contrasted, it's known as like a foil. One character or event is placed as a foil that shows another event in a different light than we would otherwise see it. Okay. So like Psalm 1 is always a great example to me of this, um, that there's the the um, righteous person we're called to like um, be like a tree planted beside the waters and, and just like soaking in the strength. But it, it says the wicked are not like that. They're like chaff blown away by the wind. And so we have this strong contrast, this foil of sort of the godly man and the and the wicked man, and we see what's the difference between them. Okay, then, and, and we're getting close here. I've got two more I want to do. Then we want to look for figures of speech, okay? And so even, you know, I mentioned with um, Psalm 1, there's the, the, the person's like a tree planted beside waters, and that, that's a figure of speech, right? It's a comparison. Um, James saying, the tongue is a fire. So he's using a figure of speech in comparing the tongue to a fire. But even the tongue is a figure of speech because it's a stand-in for our speech, the things that we say. Um, so it's important to identify all types of figures of speech that we see. Um, when, when there's imagery using, we want to try to visualize it. Um, it's not there by accident, okay? And so, um, you know, um, in Psalm 119, it talks about how the Word of God is a a light to our path, a lamp to our feet, right? And so we um, we ask, okay, why? What what is that figure of speech? What is it telling us? Like, why is it there? And how, how does it help us understand better what's going on? And then finally, on this phrase, like, how do we observe, make observations in a passage? Um, we want to watch for emotional language as well, and I think this is significant. And sometimes, sometimes we can overlook it, but um, you know, Ephesians four, uh, Paul urges his readers. Uh, he's not just suggesting, he's not just instruction, but he urges them. In, in Romans 9, Paul talks about like the Jews and he says, like, I wish, like, I wish I myself could be damned so that they didn't have to be. I mean, that's really emotional language. And so, um, and so we ask like, okay, why, like, why is he using emotional language? How does it shape? Like, wh- how could he have stated it less emotionally? And why does it matter that he did state it more emotionally? Um, what does it add? Why, why is it important to identify it here? And, um, and so all these things. So if I could just kind of step back, I want to talk for a second about making observations in the real world, because um, there may be a time where you sit down and you say, okay, find the verbs. Now I'm going to find the nouns. Now I'm going to find the modifiers to each of those. Now I'm going to, and I, that may be helpful. And again, like training in a more structured way can help us to step into something um, in, in, like you know, in a more natural way later on. 
Or maybe there's a passage that's just exceedingly tough. And again, this is when I will do this, a passage that's exceedingly difficult to tease out what's really going on. I mean, I've had plenty of these. Um, 1 Corinthians 11 comes to mind, um, and women in head coverings. And there's so much going on in that passage. And so I, I do these kinds of things. Like, what are the verbs? What are the nouns? What are the modifiers? What are the prepositional phrases? What are the analogies? What's, you know? And so that helps, that discipline helps. Most of the time, when you're just making observations in the real world, okay, when you're doing your own Bible reading um, or when you're pre- preparing to teach a Bible study, share something with a friend, um, preach a sermon even, um, on a daily basis, basis, the process is basically more fluid, okay? And so we're, we're just training, trying to train um, ourselves to see the value in this and to get a sense for like what's happening. And so mo- mo- most likely what you're going to do is you're going to do this by reading your Bible regularly and just seeing an observation pop up here and there, you know? You might, in college, I would read um, a, a section of scripture every day for a month. So I'd read the whole book of Philippians every day for a month. It's only four chapters. It didn't take me that long. And by the end of that month, man, I really saw some connections between that. I'm not saying I don't do that anymore. I'm not saying you need to do that. Um, It could be that you, um, you know, maybe you wake up one morning, you read Psalm 1, and then the next morning you read Psalm 1 again, and then you move on to Psalm 2, you know, whatever. I I, I don't know or care. Um, It's just a matter of um, in real life, you're not going to do it as structured as all this, but you're going to start noticing things the more you read. And, um, you know, I used to, I, I've read a lot of um, literature, um, fiction, nonfiction. I used to be uh, a little bit self-conscious about how little I had read. Oh, man, I should have read more. There's all these important books. I should have read them. And, um, and that was a little intimidating. It's like, how do you solve that problem, right? Well, the way you solve it is you read a book. And then when you're done with that, you read another book. And, and so now at this point, I'm 40 right now. And um, at this point, I've read a lot of things. And um, I didn't do it all at once. I did it because I developed a habit um, years and years ago where I would just in, started reading. And I really enjoy reading. I love it. And so I just, a bit at a time, and there's no insecurity in what I haven't read yet. I'm just reading what makes sense to read in the moment. And over time, that creates a lot of things that I've read. And so um, when it comes to the Bible study and making these observations, you don't have to get it all at once. You don't have to be insightful on every passage at once. Um, nobody is that. And so we just we just read it and we love it and we um, allow it to speak to us and shape us. And over time, that develops this familiarity with the text. It helps us to see observations uh, in a way that's different. Maybe, maybe a good example is um, the Christmas story. And you know, every year around Christmas, we read the Christmas story. And so we see in it what we see in it. And then the next year we come back and maybe we're, maybe we're a little numb to it because we've already heard it, right? But maybe there's some, something that stands out to us the next time. And then we go back the next year and there's something that stands out to us a little bit more, a little bit differently, or maybe we realize we've been off in our understanding of it. And so that kind of familiarity over time it can be like real world observations that we make and we just kind of notice things. And often I'll hear somebody mention something about a passage and I think, that doesn't sound quite right. I'll look it up and sometimes I'm like, yep, you were way off. And sometimes I look it up and I'm like, wow, I've never seen that there before. That's a real world observation that I got the opportunity to make just because I pulled out my phone, looked up the passage real quick. Um, and so th- that's the call with observation is just, um, just, you know, follow the process carefully when that seems appropriate. And at other times, simply just pay attention to what you're reading. Try to see what's there. Move on. And and uh, bottom line is it's a discipline where we're trying to, um, you know, back to what we said at the beginning, it's trying to um, look at the text longer than you think is necessary. It's trying to give greater attention to the text than you think you need to. Um, you know, in the same way you might, you might, 
stop and, and look at your child and, and like look at his or her face and be like, wow, I, I see you every day all the time, but um, wow, you're really pretty. Or man, your eyes, I, I don't look at the, stop and look at the, like that's, that's kind of the call is to just um, look at the Bible more than we think is necessary. Read it slowly. There's a definitely, I mean, I, w- I will make a great case for, um, you know, like to understand the book of Matthew, read the whole book of Matthew in a day, in a sitting even. Read it, uh, listen to it on audiobook at double speed even to just get it all into your brain. You can see the big picture of what that book is about. There's so much value there. There's also value in reading slowly and carefully and a little bit at a time. And so observation is the call to do all that. Now, observation stage, you're never really done with it, um, but you kind of just set a, a time and then you move on and say, okay, that's great. I'm going to move into the interpretation stage, um, which is where we're headed um, next. But we're going to, um, in the next sessions, we're going to spend time in the observation process by paying attention to what makes the biblical genres different from each other. And so we're going to split that up, um, Old Testament genres, New Testament genres, because the way you observe and the way you encounter and interpret them is different based on what genre it is. And so we're going to take the next couple of sessions to talk about first Old Testament genres, then New Testament genres. And that kind of fits under um, the observation phase. It kind of gives us some things to look for as we observe these Old and New Testament passages. And then from there, we'll jump, we'll pick up our, um, our acronym with the I with interpretation. If you would like to be an overachiever and would like to go a little bit deeper in, um, in sort of like homework, let's say, with this, um, a, a, a assignment I had in seminary when I was taking my um, hermeneutics class, my Bible study methods class, was to take a, a passage, and uh, they gave us Ephesians five, fifteen to twenty one, and take a passage like that and um, sit down and make observations. Okay, so you're literally writing out um, observations for the passage. Okay. And what we do is we're trying to come up with, the assignment was come up with 30 different observations about this passage. And what happens is you read it and you make some observations, things stand out to you. You make those, write those down. You get maybe 10, you might get 15. And then you're like, okay, I think I'm about done. Like what else is there? But you force yourself to sit there longer until you come up with the 16th observation. And then you keep looking and staring and thinking and pondering and looking for comparisons and contrasts and things like that until you get 16. And you keep going until you get to 30. And I'm telling you, there's way more than 30 observations to be made in that passage, Ephesians 5, 15 to 21. Um, but they're also, um, like, it, it's not real easy to get there at first. And it's a good discipline to try it out if you want. So, you know, Paul says things like, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. That's how he starts it. So you might make an observation. Um, it's Paul speaking, you know. Um that's number one. Number two, Paul seems to be giving instructions, you know? Number three, Paul's talking about the way in which someone should walk, you know? And so you're just kind of making these observations as you go through, and it helps you pay attention to what's really there. So if you want homework, if you want to be an overachiever, do that. Um, Try to get 30 observations on that. Um, If you like that, pick another passage and do it again. Maybe pick a shorter passage, see if you can still get 30 out of a shorter passage. Or just live your life making casual observations as you go. That's great too. Um, but but you know, there's an overachiever listening to this. I know, and you want to do that extra homework. And I'm proud of you. Here's your pre-given verbal gold star. Well done. Go, being an overachiever, going the extra mile. It helps cement the things in there. All right. Next session, we will jump into Old Testament genres.